0: The World Health Organisation predicts that the world will see one billion tobacco deaths this century. Just think about that for a sec. There's only seven billion of us. We're on track
1: for one billion tobacco deaths this century. That's Dr Bronwyn King, CEO of Tobacco Free Portfolios. Earlier in the year, eavesdrop on experts ventured out to an event, the Alumni Hour, hosted by the Faculty of Medicine, Dentistry and Health Sciences. Let's join the crowd now. Professor Fabian Mackay is about to take the stage. So it's fabulous to see so many of you coming tonight, students and alumni. So again, welcome. And also, we're going to welcome tonight two very special guests, Dr. Bernwin King, AO, and Angela Lavoir Pierre, which I pronounce with an impeccable French accent. <laughs> Angela Lavoie-Pierre is an ABC News journalist and tonight she's in conversation with Dr Bronwyn King. Now back to Professor Fabian. Bronwyn's life is the embodiment of courage, boldness and undeterred determination to change the world. She's been awarded an Order of Australia in 2019 for a service to community health and she was named 2019... Melbournian of the Year. So be ready to be inspired and please welcome both Angela and Bronwyn to the stage. Thank you.
2: Hello.
0: Hello. Hello. Great
2: to be here. Great to be here. I feel uh, very lucky to be sitting here speaking with you and I have far far (laughs) too many questions. We're not going to get through them all, but um, I think a good place to start perhaps is... I suppose, why you chose not just to come here to the University of Melbourne, but why you chose medicine at all?
0: Oh, that's a great question. In, um, when I was 14 years old, I was a competitive swimmer. Mm-hmm. And uh, so if it, at 14 you had have said to me, look, what do you do? I think most 14-year-olds mo- would probably say, look, I'm in year nine or I'm in year 10. <laughs> but I would have said, I'm a swimmer. Mm. So I was really very focused on swimming and I had dreams of being a great, I wanted to be a great swimmer, a champion swimmer. And, um, and part of that was hard training. And so I was at the gym at the Nutterwadding Swimming Club, my swimming club one day, mm-hmm. and they had a picture that I'm sure many of you have probably seen, which is a picture of the human body with all the muscles on the front and all the muscles on the back of the body. And it was the first time I had seen that picture and I was just totally mesmerised by it and I thought, now hang on, which muscle do I need to make stronger to swim a bit faster? <laughs> and, um, and it was back in the days of photocopying, so I got a photocopy of this, um, this poster and I took it home and I started memorising all the names of all the muscles. I was a big nerd How as long well. did it take you? Um, <laughs> Oh, I don't even know if I've ever uh, totally finished that off so well. But um, I just loved it. I just mm. was totally fascinated with the human body. And so at 14, I thought, you know, what? I'd love to be a doctor.
2: Mm. Okay, so you made up your mind and, and maybe shifted your singular focus from swimming to that goal. Mm. And when you began to study medicine, how did it meet with your expectations?
0: Mm. Well, um, In terms of university life, so I was a bit shocked at Mm. first when I came to uni because it was so much less structured than school had Mm. been. So actually, um, we had an event earlier today who actually told a story that, um, unfortunately, the start of my university career wasn't quite as sparkly as you (laughs) might imagine. Mm -hmm. Um, I just had a schoolgirl brain and I brought that schoolgirl thinking to to university and so actually... um, I really messed up and uh, I actually failed my first exam Really, at Melbourne University. <laughs> yeah, do we have to stop now? Do I like get, do I, do so I get, do I get thrown out at this yeah. point? But I did and um, I'm very ashamed. You know, I'd never failed anything in my life. So right. also I didn't cope with it very well. Mm. But it was because I had no idea what I was doing. So I promptly got myself a tutor for that subject and the tutor pointed out a rather major mistake that I'd been making. And I ended up, I um, actually ended up Uh, doing very well in the end of year exam and I got an H1 overall. Mm. But I did learn, it really taught me that failure happens to everybody. Mm -hmm. Maybe not an exam, but someone (laughs) in life, you will really mess up Sure, and it just doesn't matter. Mm. You just need to brush it off and get on with it. So actually, it was quite a good, a good learning experience for me. Yeah. But other than that, uni was pretty smooth. Okay. But, that, but that was, it was, a, it was a tough shock at the start. A shock
2: at the beginning, yeah. yeah. And what about oncology? When did you, uh, I guess, orient, orient yourself towards that?
0: Not for ages. Right. So I was planning to be a sports doctor. Oh. So going back, I was actually planning to be an Olympic swimmer. That didn't work out so well. Um, so I got a very bad shoulder injury, um, and I retired at 17, and so my swimming career was over, um, and that was hugely disappointing to me, because Mm. I really thought, you know, the one thing that I was good at was taken away from me, Mm. and I was 17 years old, but then I did year 12, got into med, and, um... And uh, and all throughout medical school, I thought I'd be a a sports doctor because I was so interested in sport and I had lots of friends who'd gone on um, to be involved in very high level sport at the Olympics or Commonwealth Games or in coaching or whatever.
2: A bit of envy looking on perhaps.
0: Oh yeah. And I I still just loved sport. Mm -hmm. So I actually spent A lot of time while I was, oh, as soon as I graduated, I spent a lot of time as a junior doctor, actually working as a team doctor with the Australian swimming team. Wow! And I thought that was going to be my career. That was the plan. So I was very lucky. I travelled with junior Australian swimming teams, first of all, and then senior teams. Probably one of the greatest moments in my life. I was asked to be the team doctor for the Melbourne Commonwealth Games in 2006, and I'm a Melbourne person, and I love this city. And so, getting to march in to the opening ceremony at the M- at the MCG that night of the you know of the oh, at you the get start to of march marching with Games. the
2: team, yeah, that's incredible.
0: When you're part of the team, the Australian swimming team, you're part right. of the Australian swimming team. Yeah, exactly. Of course. You get the whole fancy uniform, <laughs> you get everything. It's great. And so. Um, I sort of had dreamed of doing that. Mm. But then it all changed because I was randomly asked to work for three months on the lung cancer ward at Peter McCallum Cancer Institute. That was just what my roster said. And if truth be known... I actually tried to swap out of it All right, (laughs) and I actually tried really hard because I did I rang a whole stack of people and I was like you know could you please change like I don't really want to do this it's not so interesting and um, and this person said oh look I can't I'm going to a wedding then it doesn't it's like okay could you please change and it's like no it doesn't quite so it's like no could you and I went through all these people and finally I was like okay just all right I'll do it so I did this three-month term and um, and I was, uh, I was 25 years old at the time and I, was really, I really was the classic, you know, brand new shiny doctor, planning to save the world, do good Ooh. things. And, and I rocked up on the ward and all of my patients had lung cancer, obviously. Lung cancer is a terrible disease. And most of my patients were smokers or ex-smokers and nearly all of them had started smoking when they were children. Right. And, um, and despite living in a country with amazing medicine... I mean, thanks to a university like this and, and amazing technologies, nearly every single one of my patients died. And, uh, and it was just incredible. You know, I was a person ringing people in the middle of the night saying, look, I'm terribly sorry, but you need to come in really quickly because, you know, your dad's just taken a terrible turn for the worse and I'm really sorry, but you need to hurry and, and come and say goodbye. And sometimes I was ringing teenagers to tell them to come and say goodbye to their parents. And mm. so... Um, the, it had a really big impact on me. Sounds like it, yeah. And uh, I've never sort of really forgotten that term. And that term, I worked with Professor David Ball, who is just one of the most inspirational lung cancer doctors in the world. And we have him right here in Melbourne. And um, and he was just one of those people I couldn't help but be inspired by. And and so after that. I just kept thinking, well, that was a good job, that's a really interesting job, and I want to be like Professor Ball, and, uh, and I just couldn't get that out of my head. And so actually, I wouldn't have done
2: oncology if it wasn't for him. Mm. So that singular focus kicked in again, and then you, and then you had seen your share of human misery mm. by the sounds of things, by the time the year 2010 rolled around. Mm-hmm. Um, And you're working as a radiation oncologist at this point. That's right, exactly. Um, And then I wanna talk about uh, a meeting that you had that year that had nothing whatsoever to do with medicine. It was a meeting about your super. Tell us what happened.
0: That's it. Well, so that's it. I was working as a specialist cancer doctor by then. Mm
2: -hmm.
0: And one third of all cancers are caused by tobacco. So tobacco kind of lurks in the shadows all throughout the life of an oncologist and uh, actually my husband and I were buying a house Mm. and we sat down with the accountant and the accountant said, look, you two need to sort out your money. How much money do you have in super? And I just went, well, I've got no idea. Like I don't even really know what super is. Mm. That was about it. I'd heard of it.
2: Yeah. (laughs) That was it. That's a
0: start. Yeah, thank you. You know, and that's it. (laughs) And... um, but that's how unsophisticated I was when it came to finance but I'm a very obedient person and so the accountant says sort it out so I was like all right I will so I organised a meeting with the representative from from the super fund for all of the employees at Peter McCallum Cancer Centre and we had this meeting at the cafeteria at the hospital and uh, he brought along some paperwork and he showed me how much money I had and you know we had a nice little chat and I remember I had a latte and you know, it was all very pleasant. I shook his hand. The meeting finished, mm. and completely as an afterthought, I rushed back to the table and I said, "Oh, by the way, was I meant to tell you what to do with that money?" And he said, "No, no, no. You don't need to worry. It's all taken care of. You're in the default option." And I said, "Oh, option. You know, does that does that mean there are other options?" And he looked at me and he rolled his eyes, and he just went, oh, "Look, there is this one greeny option for people who have a problem with investing in mining, alcohol, or tobacco." And I said, did you just say tobacco? And he said, yes. And I said, so you're telling me I'm currently investing in tobacco? And he said, oh yes, everyone
2: is.
0: (laughs) And that was it. That was just this incredible moment because i suddenly realised, you know, I'd been going to work every day for more than 10 years trying to help people who were suffering as a result of tobacco and not helping them very well. People are very nice to doctors and oncologists and thank us for everything. But the truth is, tobacco-related illness is awful and most Mm. people don't survive. Mm. So I knew that firsthand. And yet at the very same time, I found out my money, my money is being invested in the companies that make the products that are killing my own patients.
2: How angry were you? You
0: know what? Actually, angry isn't the right word for me. I'm not an angry person.
2: You do have a kind kind of, you get like this fire when you talk about that, you're like, you, you, you're, you're annoyed, maybe, is what I don't know if angry is a word. Tell me, maybe you totally describe the feeling. totally
0: undermined. Mm. It made me feel like my whole life was pointless. <laughs> <laughs> really, what's the point of going to work every day, watching people die from tobacco, when in fact your own money is fueling that industry? Sure. And I just thought, what on earth am I doing? I've studied all this time to try to help people. I know that what we're doing is really tough. I know the health sector is doing everything it can and yet, at the same time, we're all working against each other. It just felt—it just felt like something that I couldn't walk past, and and I couldn't sleep after that. It just—it just got to me.
2: So, what, what was the next step that you took?
0: Well, actually, um, every Friday, all of the radiation oncologists at Peter McCallum got together to discuss an interesting patient. And my turn was coming up a few weeks later. And so instead of discussing an interesting patient, I presented this. And I told everyone in the room I presented. And by then I'd, I'd contacted that, um, the Superfund representative because I said to him, could you just tell me which shares I have? What have, what have I got then? Mm. Tell me. And uh, he rang me back. And I actually still have the piece of paper because uh, where I wrote it down, he, I, he paged me. I was working at the hospital. And I can still remember there... And he said, look, you've got tobacco in the international shares part of your portfolio, which was a very big part, and it is a big part of everybody's portfolio. So it's about 50% of all your money in super will be in international shares. And he said, your number one holding is British American tobacco. Hmm. Your number two holding is Imperial Tobacco. Your number four holding is Philip Morris. And your number five holding is a Swedish match company. So four of the top five companies that I was investing in were tobacco companies.
2: And when you looked into it, did you find that that was an aberration? Was it relatively standard?
0: Uh, So I found out pretty quickly that pretty much every super fund in Australia had money invested in tobacco companies. And then I found out actually it wasn't just super funds, it was banks, insurance agencies, sovereign wealth funds, fund managers. And then I found out it wasn't actually Australia, it was the entire world. So, the whole global finance sector is completely tangled up in the tobacco industry and, um, and it's a great big mess. But I'm glad I didn't understand that right at the start because I think that would have frightened me. Yes. So, it was actually quite good that I didn't know what I was doing at the start.
2: That, yeah, there's a question about that later. Um, <laughs> so, you had that idea and you went along to the meeting and you, you started talking about it and, and developing this idea. How quickly did things scale up from there and what did it become?
0: I was pretty slow at the start. Okay. So I discussed it amongst the team, the, the radiation oncologists. The head radiation oncologist said, look, you really need to tell the CEO of the hospital. So I did. And 24 hours later, he rang back and he said, I'd like you to present to the CEO and the investment team of this super fund. And uh, that was scheduled for a few months later. I did that, and that kicked off the conversation. Now, in 2010, the concept of transparency around finance, responsible finance, sustainable finance, all of those concepts were very, very new. So the, con- the, the conversation that I wanted to have with people was really tough. And, um, and even though I got a few meetings, people were largely humoring me by taking mm. the meetings. Mm. And so not much happened for a while, but eventually I was asked to present to the board of my own super fund which was the super fun for a lot of the people at Peter Mac. And, uh, and the meeting went well. I had the CEO of the hospital here. I had Professor David Ball from the lung cancer ward. I asked him to come with me, and he did. Um, he sat there. And the meeting went well. And... Um, And there were still more considerations uh, for the Superfund to go through. But in the end, in the middle of 2012, they decided to go tobacco-free. We had a joint press release with the hospital. So it was a good news story. Everybody felt great. They felt great. We felt great. The community felt great. They got incredible feedback. um, And they got rid of $200 million worth of tobacco that day. And and that was the start of uh, tobacco-free portfolios.
2: Right. So it's significantly bigger than that now. I guess what I want to know is how you take it from that one win in 2012 to something that is much broader. Yeah. What was the next step?
0: Well, I was so overwhelmed that day of that announcement and um, I guess a couple of things happened that day. One was that Professor Ball sent me an email And uh, he wrote down and he said, um, you know, he said, uh, congratulations on this big change. And he said, with this action, you will save more lives than in an entire lifetime as a clinician. Keep up the good work. Mm. Now, that was big because for me, it meant that someone who I really respected was backing me. And so... I did get a lot of criticism over the years, and I still do. People say to me, did you seriously study for 15 years to be a radiation oncologist, and now you fly all around the world and have, the, have meetings with CEOs of banks? Like, <laughs> is that what you did that for? Um, and, uh, but I can just brush it off. It, it, that sentence for me has been like a shield in my life that just flicks away any criticism because I just secretly think to myself, well, look, if Professor Ball thinks it's a good idea, it probably is. <laughs> and uh, so I don't really care what anybody else thinks. Mm. Um, but the second thing that happened that day was that I reached out to the CEO of, the pension, of that super fund. And I wrote to him and I said, thank you. I said, this is just amazing. This is really great. I want to thank you for this decision. It's overwhelmingly the right thing to do. It really resonates with us at the hospital. We feel great to belong to a super fund that has this, has drawn a line in the sand yeah. and said, look, you know, this is this is what we stand for and what we don't stand for. And so um, I wrote to him and then I said, look, I'd love to catch up with you and, and see if we could have a bit of a chat. And so that meeting took place a while later, because um, I was having babies at the time. Yeah. <laughs> but after I came back from attorney leave, we met. And it was one of those meetings that was scheduled for about 20 minutes that went for an hour and a half.
2: Great. You always know those are good.
0: If the meeting's going a long time, you know everything's going well. Yeah. And in that meeting, um, he could see that it was an idea worth championing and I could see that he wanted to help me. And so in the end... um, he, so his name is um, Michael Dwyer. He's, he's a step down now as the CEO of First State Super. But he, um, he took me under his wing and put me on stage and sometimes stood on stage beside me at finance organisations while I was learning the language of finance and how to speak finance, how to, how to understand the regulatory environment and how it would all work. Um, but he also opened his little black book and very kindly introduced me straight at the very highest level across the Australian superannuation sector. And one by one by one, you know, this, it was just the network expanded, expanded, expanded. And, um, and so now there are, yeah, there are 45 Australian super funds that are tobacco free and they control about $1.5 trillion of Australians money. And, um, and that wouldn't have happened without him being that, that sort of, uh, you know, supporter and champion right from the start.
2: Okay, so many questions, um, but I guess the first one, I, I was was—I was really interested in the pitch that you ended up developing when you were speaking to these finance leaders because, uh, and you must have honed it over time, but it's not easy to stand up, particularly, you know, as you say, use, using language that is, it's a whole other set of language, it's a whole other realm. Not only have you had to bridge that gap, but you then have to do the hard work of convincing them. And you developed this like, pop-up ethical framework, which I just think is brilliant, um, can, can you tell us what questions you asked those people to apply to their mm. investment decisions? Mm.
0: It, you're right, it took years and years to develop that. <laughs> so, I, I call it my presentation mm-hmm. for the finance sector, and I think I've probably refined it close to a thousand times now in the past 10 years. Mm-hmm. And every time I gave it and I've given it, I'm super sensitive to how people interpret it, and I, I try to imagine what it's like sitting in their shoes, listening to me. Mm. And I watch them very carefully and look at them. And if something doesn't resonate, I think, right, get rid of that next time. And if something does, it's like, good, that slide's staying in. Good. Um, And every time something new happens, I'll put it in and switch it out and refine and tweak. And so I'm working on that presentation every single day. It changes every single presentation I give. Um, But what ended up being extremely helpful was creating a framework to help finance leaders justify why it is reasonable to take such a strong position on the tobacco industry. And so I just suggest they ask three questions. And question one is, and this is a a system that you can use when you're thinking about investing in any company. Just ask three questions of any company. Question one, does a company make a product that can be used safely? And the answer for tobacco is no. So zero is the only, safe amount of tobacco for a human being. It's it's crystal clear, it's black and white. Question two is, does the company cause a problem so significant globally that it's subject to a UN treaty or a global convention? And the answer for tobacco is yes. And this is extremely unique. There's only one global health treaty that exists. And perhaps someone else in this room can, can invent the second, third and fourth ones. But at the moment, there's only one that exists. And it's the UN Tobacco Control Treaty And that's been set up because the World Health Organisation predicts that the world will see one billion tobacco deaths this century. Just think about that for a sec. There's only seven billion of us. We're on track for one billion tobacco deaths this century. And so is there a UN treaty or a global convention? Yes. And then the third question is, the buzzword in the finance sector at the moment is engagement. So the finance sector says, look, we know all these issues are tricky with certain companies. We're going to sit down and engage with those companies, have a nice chat, have a dialogue, and see if we can shift those companies into doing better things. And engagement is effective in a whole raft of cases, and it does push companies to do better things. There there are many examples. But the question is, does engagement work? Is that an effective strategy for this issue? And the thing with tobacco is no. Engagement with the tobacco industry is futile because the only acceptable outcome is that they shut down? That they people have stop tried. their primary business. Mm. So this is it, and so it's also it, this is not just me saying engagement doesn't work with tobacco companies. In fact, the UN mm. has a non-engagement policy with mm-hmm. the tobacco industry, which is also extraordinary to have an actual policy like that. So that's our little framework. Um, we spend a lot of time discussing the ins and outs of that, as you can imagine, yeah. and. Um, And, you know, there are many, many other controversial or difficult or um, unethical or questionable industries or companies out there. And so we do end up discussing all of those as well, or at least touching on them and and talking about how they might fit in that framework or how they don't fit in that framework. Um, But for us, it's been a very helpful way to shape the conversation.
2: I want to talk about the conversations that you had that didn't go how you planned because I can imagine that there would have been times that you walked into those rooms and you were met with a brick wall. Tell me how those conversations went and I guess how you respond to that.
0: Mm, There's lots of those. (laughs) So what I've done over the years is, um, I've sort of invented this little system that I use And uh, I don't know why, but I always imagine a protractor. I'm such a nerd, right, so we just have to get over that. But you know a protractor with the 180 degrees? Like, I always imagine this protractor. So when I'm going in to meet someone from the finance sector, I'm trying to work out where do they fit between here, where they absolutely hate what I do. They're not interested at all. In fact, I probably wouldn't get a meeting with them. I'm only seeing them because I'm bumping into them at a conference or something. So they're over here. Or, okay, they'll you know, they'll tolerate me if they have to, to we're sort of warming up, we're getting a bit bit better than here, they're interested. Here, they're like, actually, we could probably do this. Over here, they're implementing the new policy. Here, they're standing on stage announcing it. And over here, they've just introduced me to their best friend, who's the CEO of another big bank. Hmm. Where are they on that scale? And when I go and sit down in a meeting, I very strategically work out where they are in the first probably five minutes. And then I just try to sort of speak about five to 10 degrees in front of that. There has to be some magic tension between us so I can pull them along this way. Mm -hmm. And if they're here and I'm here, it doesn't work. It it just doesn't work. If if they're really, really resistant, all I try to do, so for the really difficult ones, all I try to do is move them off zero. Mm. (laughs) Let's even get them to one degree Mm. and I secure a second conversation, a second meeting. That's all I try to do. And the reason why I don't get worried or don't get upset about that anymore is because I have seen hundreds of people go from zero all the way over here to people who are now um, championing us, joining our advisory council, coming to the United Nations with us, doing all sorts of things. And so it's almost become like a game for me because when I meet someone here I think how long is it going to be until I get one right <laughs> So I'm very optimistic.
2: Um, when I heard about what you were doing. I couldn't help but think of the divestment movement around fossil fuels, which has been incredibly well publicised. Um, were there lessons uh, from that, those kinds of campaigns for you in your work, or do you see them as totally separate?
0: Oh, no, they're definitely linked. I mean, I think it's actually far broader than fossil fuels and mm. climate. So going back to sort of that framework. So initially, I just used to talk about tobacco. This is back in 2010, but pretty quickly I learnt that I had to have a good knowledge base around a whole range of difficult sectors, and that includes alcohol, sugar, controversial weapons, war, gender diversity, palm oil, ocean plastic, um, you know, gambling, pornography, fossil fuels, climate change, human rights. You can just go on and on. And one time I was actually sitting in the States about a year ago, and I was having one of those zero conversations mm. <laughs> with someone in the finance sector who really didn't want to talk to me. And she said to me, "Are you?" she got a bit angry, she said, are you just sitting there saying tobacco is the most important thing in the world because tomorrow someone's going to sit there saying guns are the most important thing. Um, And uh, anyway, at the time, I was a bit shocked because she really was quite angry. And of course, I have a long time to think about this on the plane on the way home. And then I think up my really good answer, Mm. of course. Not at the time. (laughs) Anyway, what I did, though, was actually added a new slide to my presentation. And it's a new slide with with little logos to represent all those things I just said. So a sugar logo, plastic logo, all of these little logos. Because I think it's absurd to have a competition about what's the most evil thing in the world because they're actually all important issues. Mm-hmm. A whole lot of them are important. But what we need to do is link the issue with the appropriate tool for change that the finance sector has at its disposal. And there are a few different tools, and this is probably getting a bit technical, but there are more things that you can do than just invest or not invest. There are a few other levers that you might pull. So one of them I mentioned was engagement. This is a mm. buzzword. Sometimes engagement is effective. Sometimes there's this other thing called best of sector investing, where you might only invest in the best of a certain kind of company and you don't invest in the rest. There's also impact investing where, so for example, in climate, a lot of people are putting a lot of money into hydro and solar Mm -hmm. and clean technologies. So when it comes to climate, it's actually far more complicated than tobacco. I always tell people tobacco is the easy one. It's Mm. really easy because you're either in or you're out. There is no nuance there. But with climate, you can probably pull all of those levers. For some companies, you might get rid of them altogether. For some companies, you might sit down and say, look, we still need what you're doing, but we need to do it much in you know, a much cleaner way. We should absolutely look at impact investing and, and get really, really pushing up solar, hydro, all sorts of other technolo- wind technologies. Um, and we should uh, you know, use all of those strategies to, to do whatever we can to really pivot to make sure that, you know, the worst climate predictions don't come true.
2: Mm. And um, that's the difficult, those are the difficult conversations that you had with the finance sector. Um, But I can't help but wonder, uh, because you've funneled, I I read more than a trillion dollars away from tobacco companies, maybe the count's higher than that
0: now. So globally? yeah. It's now, in
2: Aussie dollars, yeah. it's $12.5 trillion. $12.5 trillion. OK, so that's about uh, six times the US annual US defence budget. Like, that's a staggering amount of money um, that we... The, the mind boggles, right? Like, you can't, you can't even picture that. Um, it's a lot of zeros. It's a lot of
1: zeros. Let me tell you that. It's so many zeros. Next up is a brief discussion about Bronwyn's personal safety. But keep in mind, her campaign now has traction with many people involved.
2: What I wanted to know, I guess, is, is if you found yourself with mm. enemies in the tobacco industry as well, because surely, surely by now they've gone, wait, mm. who's this Bronwyn mm. King? Mm. And no, where's haven't. all our money? And what, what, what does that look like?
0: Well, it's a very challenging industry to go up against. There's probably nothing like it globally. Um, so we receive advice about how to take care of ourselves and to try to protect our personal safety as much as we can. Tobacco control advocates in many countries have had violence threats and some of them have even lost their lives. Um, So it's been pretty full-on sort of learning about the extent of what's happened to other people. I feel as an Australian the risk of that is very low, which is even more reason why I should do it. Sure. Um, so, for example, I presented to, um, it was actually Melbourne Uni public health students, it was like five years ago, gave a little presentation and at the end I was taking questions and one woman put up her hand and said, look, I'm from Bangladesh and I'm just wondering how you feel about your personal safety because if you did that work in Bangladesh, you'd probably be murdered. <laughs> and I was really taken aback. Mm. And I thought, wow, you know, it's incredible. But on reflection, it really did make me think, well, actually, being an Australian, maybe that is even more reason why I need to do this, because the people of Bangladesh can't do it. And if the people of Bangladesh can't do it and other countries where the tobacco industry has a very sort of strong foothold, if people in those countries can't do it, well then who's going to?
2: (laughs) Was that a rapid realisation or a dawning one? Maybe what you got yourself into in regards to Personal safety and the consequences of that nature. Oh,
0: I think it's still dawning, to be honest. I, mm. I, um, it's uh, well initially too. The the work was very Australian focused, but then as we've extended globally, you know, it's um it's obviously we're in a different place now. So I have a, we have offices in um, London, and we just set up a USA office two months ago, and so I spend a lot of time overseas, a lot, a lot, a lot of time overseas. So I'm away. Um, a huge amount of time, and so that's different. So I'm Mm. not, even though I'm based here, um, uh, we've had an impact in 22 countries now.
2: 22 countries, okay. Um, So I guess I wanted to talk about, I mean, we probably don't have time to talk about all of them individually, but where the kind of divide is there? Like which are the countries that you just found to be wholly impenetrable and not up for this conversation at all? And by contrast, where are the places that have swung open the door?
0: They're wildly different. Mm. Um, and so, every time, you know, part of that protractor little system I was talking about, it, mm. it very much does depend on which country I'm in, because certain countries do seem to have certain bandwidths that I can almost put them in before I've met the person. Mm. So, um, uh, with a name like uh, La Voix Pierre, mm-hmm. you'll be very happy to hear that one country that sits right at the forefront of sustainability thinking is France. Right. And uh, I can't tell you how happy I am that our conversations have gone unbelievably well in Mm -hmm. France. Um, And people find that shocking because they say, "Oh, but the French, they love to smoke. smoke, This doesn't make sense. But actually, it's totally the opposite. So the French finance sector, outside of Australia, our work has been more successful in France than anywhere else. And um, the French finance sector has championed this and pushed this and and made this uh, far bigger than I ever could have imagined. So France, Scandinavia, New Zealand, Australia, Canada, very, very advanced thinking around this. The two countries that have been the toughest for us are the USA and the UK. And that's because the tobacco industry is really very ingrained in both of those countries.
2: Mm. So you were talking earlier about, um, I guess, how you'd imagined your career (laughs) at the very beginning and and it's you know fair to say that it's well off course, but in the best possible way. <laughs>
0: it's totally off course. Goodness me, it's totally off course. But it, it, it's funny. A, um, my first colleague in tobacco free portfolios, Claire Payne. She's a great thought leader in in ethics and finance. Um, and in fact, she teaches here at University of Melbourne. She um, she and I you know worked together closely for years. And it was just as we'd started to take our first global steps and I said to her, look, I don't, I don't quite know where I'm going. Mm. And she said, just keep stepping forwards, the path is forming under your feet. And I thought that is the best quote because <laughs> it, it just summed it up yeah. for me because I was stepping forwards. It felt like I was going the right direction and it was progress and it was good and it was positive but um, I honestly didn't know where I was going. But I love this idea of, don't worry, the path is coming. It's just right under you. Just keep going. And um, so it really conveyed this sense of sort of scary apprehension, but at the same time, security. It's going to be fine.
2: Do you ever see yourself winding back to a path that more closely resembles the one you first imagined? I or think is...
0: that's very unlikely okay <laughs> right interesting, yeah, I've got myself in way too deep now yeah
2: so well in that case, I mean what's the kind of how do you i mean you've, it feels like you've scaled up almost as far as one can scale this up. How... Oh no, I'm just getting warmed up. Well, where yeah. does it go from here
0: well, um Maybe I could just tell you about our, the, the big thing, our big yeah. flagship initiative is called the Pledge. OK. I just want to tell you about that Please. so that I yeah. can then explain sort of yeah, where yeah. we're going. But so our work was going well in Australia. We then had this impact in France. The biggest French insurer goes tobacco free. They got rid of $2.8 billion worth of tobacco. The biggest pension plan in Europe goes tobacco free. Then the biggest bank in Europe stops lending, investing, insuring tobacco companies. Their CEO joins my advisory council. Everything's going very well. Yeah, It's like, wow. And uh, Claire and I started to get invited to events on the global circuit, including at the UN. And so Claire and I went to the UN during the UN General Assembly in September 2017. And we And we're invited to all these events on sustainable finance and all sorts of interesting things. And just after that, that's when the big bank, uh, BNP Paribas, the big French bank, went tobacco-free. And, and I remember ringing Claire and I said, look, everything's going so well... Why don't we have an event at the UN? Everybody else seems to be. So <laughs> it's why? just a done thing. It's a done thing. So why, why don't we? And so it was just before Christmas 2017. I emailed three heads of three UN agencies and I said to them, would you partner with us if we had an event at the UN? And I honestly thought there was about a 1% chance that one of them might say yes. But within 48 hours, all three of them emailed back and said yes, yes, yes. And I thought, Okay. All right. So I emailed all of these business leaders who we'd worked with around the world and I said, if we had an event at the UN, would you come? Mm. They all said yes. <laughs> and I was like, okay. So it gets to January of 2018, the UN General Assembly is September, so we've got like eight or nine months to play with. and. We had our first phone call to organise this event and we gave it a name. We're going to call it the Pledge, the Tobacco-Free Finance Pledge, and we're going to try to get finance organisations to sign up to pledge that they're going to do this. And we're having this phone call. It's a conference call. Everyone's all around the world. And I was just saying, this is going to be amazing. We have this great event. It'll be, it'll be fantastic. And the heads of one of the UN agencies, he, he interrupts and he says, oh, Bronwyn, you do realise if you're going to have an event at the UN that you need a prime minister and a president to sign off for you?
2: <laughs> you went, yeah, 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 I knew that, yeah. I uh,
0: just, just leave that with me. Yeah, no worries. So our second call, let's schedule that one. So it was like, okay. And then he said, um, one of them really should be from the G7. I was like, okay, great. Sure, no problem. Exactly. Speak to you next month. Great. So I got off the phone, but then I ring my friends in the French finance sector. And I said to them, could you help me here? Because we've got to randomly get a president and a prime minister, you know, just a little issue. And, uh, and about a week later, the CEO of the biggest bank in Europe wrote me an email with an attachment and it was a letter. And he said, what do you think of this? And the letter was addressed directly to President Macron and it was the most beautiful letter you can imagine. And he had signed it, the CEO of BNP Paribas. And he got three other CEOs from th- the other three biggest French financial organisations. They wrote directly to Macron and they said, "Look, we've been working with Dr King and her team. We've gone tobacco-free. We feel very proud to be involved, and we would like uh, you to seriously consider signing off for this event." Anyway, President Macron's team said uh, yes. They'll meet with me. So. A month later, there I was at the Elysee in Paris, meeting President Macron's advisor. He says, President Macron's into sustainable finance, he'll love this, go home, sort this out with your Prime Minister and we're in. <laughs> okay, great. And then they said, yeah, Macron's coming to Australia on the 1st of May, this is 2018, right. and uh, they'll dis- he'll discuss it, he'll bring it up with Prime Minister Turnbull then. Mm-hmm. On the way home, I dropped in at the big anti-tobacco conference that was on um, in in, uh, South Africa. I then meet with the head of the UN Tobacco Control Treaty and I tell her about it. And I said, if we had this event, will you come? She's in. I then meet with the head of the World Health Organization. Mm -hmm. And uh, he listened very carefully to my story and then he said to me, that is the missing piece of global tobacco control. I'm coming. Mm. Great. So then I go home. And then to cut a very long story short, it was two months of torture because I went to Canberra, visited Canberra, kind of wrote to Canberra, visited, went, wrote, and everybody said they would sign off when somebody else signed off, but somebody had to go first. And so it was kind of excruciating to the point where um, the day before President Macron was coming, no-one had briefed the Prime Minister. And so I was kind of dying. Anyway, I emailed the guy that I had met, from President Macron's team, and I said to him, look, uh, you know, hope all is well for your trip to Australia. Uh, look, you know, if you happen to have any free time, you know, please let me know, it'd be very nice to catch up. And he, um, his, his um, secretary wrote straight back, he didn't get an email, his secretary wrote back and said, look, he's actually not coming, uh, but he wishes you well, and President Macron looks forward to raising the issue with your Prime Minister tomorrow. I was like, oh my gosh. <laughs> you know, it was like, wow, I'm going to create this international diplomatic disaster. Anyway, <laughs> then, then, but the guy I met then answered, he actually checked his email and he wrote back and he said, yes, we've briefed this person, this person, this person, it's on the official agenda for conversation and we, we are, we're so happy it's going to go well. And uh, anyway, 1st of May rolls around, President Macron's in the air. It was the most torturous moment and I just thought, wow, I can't believe I've totally stuffed this up. It's going to be excruciating. And so that morning I thought, I'm just going to give one more shot. And I rang everyone I knew in Canberra, everyone, and basically begged them. And uh, about an hour later, the Health Minister's Office rang back and they said, don't worry, it's all fine. It's all fine. You're going to hear from the Prime Minister's Office soon. An hour later, the Prime Minister's Office rings and said, it's all right, we've got it. We're going to brief the Prime Minister. It's all fine. Thank you. It's fine. And I'm like, oh, thank you so much. You know, and then they said, you are coming to dinner tonight, aren't you? <laughs> and I said, "Oh, um, well, look, I haven't, uh, haven't got an invitation." So, uh... and they go, "The dinner at the opera house." I said, "Well, I, I-, I could, I could come to dinner at the <laughs> opera house." <laughs> um, and I said, "Yes, yeah, that would. I just, yeah, the." And she said, "Look, let me just check. I'll, I'll sort out an invitation for you." I'm from Melbourne, you know. (laughs) And uh, anyway, I immediately put down the phone, picked up the phone and uh, rang my assistant. I said, look, book me a ticket to, book me a ticket right now. And, And so she books me a ticket to Sydney. I go to the airport, I get to Sydney. The invitation lands in my inbox. I get to the Opera House. And an hour later, I meet President Macron. He signed off on our event. The Prime Minister at the time, Mr Turnbull, signed off on our event and we were able to launch the Tobacco-Free Finance Pledge at the UN in September 2018.
2: Mm.
0: It was excruciating. There's now 129 signatories and together uh, they account for some of the world's biggest financial organisations in the world. They control $12.5 Aussie dollars and this year we're having a big celebration of the two-year anniversary, hoping to get as many more recruits as we can. Just to give context, that's about 10% of the global, the amount of finance in the world, so there's lots of debates as to how much money is swilling around the world, but that's oh. about 10%. Mm-hmm. Obviously, that's just a nice start, but uh, we really want to celebrate that progress and encourage
2: others to follow suit. Yes, absolutely. <laughs> Now, as promised, I didn't get through all my questions, but it's time for other people to have a go. Uh, so we're going to offer the opportunity to ask Bronwyn some questions. If you have any, um, Kristen and Alicia, I think, have microphones. Um, and maybe while you're thinking of your your first one, I suppose I um I did have I did have another question. Mm. I suppose a, a, a relevant one, given you know the the audience here today. Mm. Um, is for anyone here who's a recent graduate or a student who's kind of trying to imagine, and it's so hard to imagine at the best of times, um, how, their, uh, how their career might play out. What, what advice would you give to those people?
0: I think the most important thing is to be open to opportunities. Um, obviously, my life has taken me on a very unorthodox, unexpected path, and... Um, and so I've, I've really tried to just be open to what the universe has, in plan, you know, has planned for me. Mm. So I'd encourage that. Don't, try not to be too rigid um, to what you have in mind, especially because the world's changing so quickly. And you know, we know that there are going to be jobs in your lifetimes that don't even exist today, that don't even have names today. So in a way, it would sort of be a shame to be really set when the world's going to open up opportunities and will continue to do that um, all throughout your lives. But I think the other thing is to really play to your strengths, acknowledge what you're good at and acknowledge what you're not good at. And one thing for me, much to this disappointment of perhaps some of the front row people in this room, is that I'm actually not good at research. I I wish I was, but I'm not. And it's possibly taken years of therapy for me to say that (laughs) but I am not good at research I'm not and it was really tough because I was working at Peter McCallum Cancer Centre where really researchers are the ones who are glorified Mm -hmm. everyone wants to be a great researcher and the problem is it's just not my thing it's just not my thing I know the world needs great researchers but it's not going to be me and so finally after I found this work I could just call it and say you know what I'm really not good at that but I just love this. It feels like I'm in the right place, and so I'd encourage people to try to find something that doesn't entirely feel like work. Mm. For me, this is a great pleasure. It's a passion. It's energizing, um, and so try to find something that really fits your skill set, fits what you love, and um, and something that makes you want to get out of
2: bed in the morning. Mm. Does anyone have any questions?
3: This might be personal, so you can say not to answer it, but um, <laughs> as a junior doctor right at the start of my own career, I do find myself pulled in passions and interests um, that sometimes take away from the clinician in me and take time and energy from that. Um, so what would you tell yourself now, looking back on where you've come, when you were right at that stage, you're thinking, am I a clinician or am I chasing this? And I guess what advice do you want to tell yourself from back then, now that you've sort of Come out the other side. <laughs> mm. um, well, I, I'm still a tiny bit of a clinician, just
0: <laughs> tiny. So uh, I've probably treated my last patient in radiation, but I'm still seeing some follow-up patients who had treatment you know, in years gone by. Um, I think initially I, I sort of had a foot in both camps because medicine was everything, and then it sort of was just got push down, push down, and now we're we're really here. But, you know, Tobacco Free Portfolios was doing that at the same time. So it was a little bit of a, I had a bit of a safety net because I kept, you know, I I did keep medical work going. Um, And it is scary to sort of totally leave that. Um, And, you know, you said it's personal. It is risky. I can't say it was a great financial decision at all because I set up a charity that relies on donations. And um, unfortunately, unfortunately, the cause of tobacco does not secure much at all in the, in the way of donations. So that's been really, really hard. Um, so I did have a foot in both camps. But there's another... Uh, Do do any of you know Holly Ransom, superstar Australian who will probably end up being our Prime Minister one day? Um, And uh, she said this great quote, and I I remember it. It it was a great description for what I feel, which was that if you're trying to do something at some point, or do something risky or big, at some point, you need to imagine it like doing a backflip. And if you're going to do a backflip, you're going to have to let your feet leave the ground. And for a little moment in time, you're totally in flight and you might land on your head. But you can't land on your hands unless you let your feet leave the ground. And I have felt like, because medicine was still there, I actually felt like I did still have my feet on the ground and I couldn't quite do the flip. And now I feel like I'm totally in the air and I'm doing my very best to land on my hands.
1: So despite your wonderful efforts, there's still a lot of investment in unethical companies and tobacco. Do you have advice for people to, who, who want to try and get out of that in their personal investments?
0: Well, hopefully we'll be able to help you solve that problem very soon. So this week we've just launched, for the finance sector only, um, publicly it's going to come later, but we've launched this new thing called the Stamp of Approval. And it's for, if super funds would like to, they can sign up they will be assessed against criteria that we have set to craft what is tobacco free and if they meet that criteria they can aden- then adopt this stamp so that you can easily look up a website or in a brochure and see and be sure that your money is not invested in tobacco because at the moment you probably can find it, sometimes you can't find it at all but if you can find it it's hidden in a ridiculous product disclosure statement that's 30 pages long that nobody can understand and, um, and it shouldn't be that hard to find out that your money is not invested in big tobacco. When we consider sustainable finance or ethical finance or responsible finance more broadly, we really think of tobacco as just the first step, but it's a very good marker because if a super fund cannot deal with the issue of tobacco, which I it really is, I mean broadly and widely regarded as the easy one, if they can't get their heads around tobacco, I mean, I really don't know how they can possibly get their heads around climate change or any of these far more complicated, nuanced issues that require a whole lot of action, probably forever. Tobacco, you're in or you're out, that's it. Um, So hopefully, um, you know, that will help people realise where their money is. And I really just encourage people to remember that superannuation is your money. It's yours. It doesn't belong to the superannuation company, um, it's entirely your money, and you have the right to know where it's invested, um, and uh, and you need to make sure that it is aligned, and in, you know with your values, the way that you think, the way that you want the world to be, and you know there's some great quotes about, um, you know you need to um, you need to make sure that oh I've forgotten the exact quote, hang on I'm just it's just coming to me now, but it's um, something like you know money shapes the world that we want, you know make sure that your money is shaping the world that you want because ultimately that's it. Money makes things happen, or it makes things not happen. It's unbelievably powerful. And collectively, Australians have the fourth biggest superannuation industry in the world. So we often don't realise that. I certainly didn't know that. Um, USA is number one, and it's enormous. Then the UK, and then Japan and Australia are often sort of jockeying for numbers three and four. But we're massive in terms of our collective power. So, you know, I think that... Uh, you know, I'd really encourage people to be aware of that power, raise their voices, and uh, make things change.
1: Um, first of all, thank you so much. So when you took your work globally, um, what kind of you know, tobacco-free campaigns or charities did you collaborate with? And if so, in what kind of capacity? Well,
0: actually, um, there are no tobacco campaigns or charities that do what we do. We're the only ones in the whole world, that's it. And so we try to bridge the world of health and finance. We try to build this bridge, um, and no one else is doing that. No one else in tobacco control speaks finance. Um, yeah, we were talking about how we had to, I had to learn the language. So early on, I actually Googled finance words. Like I was like Googling, how do you pronounce fiduciary duty? And like, I, I rang my dad, who was an accountant, and I used to say, Dad, can you just put this in a sentence? Yeah, now put it in another sentence. Now use it again. Like I, I actually had to learn, just totally learn the language and do everything. So... Um, uh, No, I've forgotten the start of the question.
2: Collaborating with.
0: (laughs) Oh, collaborating. But yes, so we're the only ones, though, the only group that learnt that language, that speak that language, and that we consider ourselves as great collaborators with the finance sector, so we work with the finance sector. We work very quietly, professionally, behind the scenes with them to try to understand what are the blocks, what are the barriers, and how can we fix the problem to get to where we we want to be, so I've had to sort of embed myself in finance, and that's where we sit as a different group. So many other there are many anti-tobacco charities out there. They're really focused on you know going to schools, encouraging children to quit, implementing tobacco policy at government level. So encouraging, say you know no advertising of tobacco in sport or um, no smoking on planes, no smoking in restaurants, plain packaging legislation, all of that kind of stuff, increasing taxes. Um, but no one does what we do. We're the only ones. So it really was a gap. And so that's why when I met the head of the World Health Organization, that's why he said, that's the missing piece, because no one else was doing it.
2: Uh, I just picked up on something, sorry, a supplementary question. Mm. picked up on something that you said just now about uh, there being a need for um, being quiet and and discreet Mm. in some ways. Mm. Is that to kind of Protect your relationships with those that you haven't yet convinced but hope to in the future.
0: Mm.
2: So not embarrassing everyone. So
0: our mantra is we name and fame. Mm. That's exactly what we do. Mm -hmm. So we only sort of disclose the names of who we're working with. Well, actually, we never disclose the names of who we're working with unless it's after they've made the decision and they're comfortable Mm. for us to disclose. Mm. So we really work with them. We collaborate with them. And I think being a doctor was hugely advantageous because people trusted me with all their secrets right at the start. They would tell me, they'd actually say, I mean, I had some of them say, you know what, we've actually got a billion dollars invested in tobacco. And I would say, look, I get it, you know, that's how the finance sector's always been. You've always had a bit of money in tobacco. That's not the issue. Can we move on? And you know, could you look at implementing a sustainable finance framework? And, could, you know, would you consider this? And, and so we try to just open people's minds to setting a baseline standard around how they will make money um, because that is actually the question. Because, of course, we want our super funds to make money. We want everybody to have a comfortable and dignified retirement. I think everybody would agree with that. But the question is, is there no baseline standard below which we will not sink to make money? Is there absolutely nothing that you will stop at? to make money. And when I ask people that one-on-one, they nearly always go, oh no, 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 there are certain things I wouldn't do. And it's like, great, let's, let, what are they? Yeah. Let's, let's craft that, let's craft the framework, let's start building it out. And it's a productive discussion, mm. it's a really, you know, it's really an interesting discussion. And so, yeah, we name and fame, mm. we name and fame, and it's, that's been a really important part of what we do, and that has led to our global advisory council is full of finance leaders from all over the world, because they feel good. And they leave a great legacy and, um, and so for example, I invited them all to the UN and lined them all up on stage and they great all spoke. Great outcome for them, yeah. So this is it. But it is. It's a win-win. Yeah. So they feel good, we feel good, and the movement gets a great big push forwards. So it's been a great, a great strategy. And also, as I said, I'm not actually an angry person, mm. so it fits me really well mm. because I much prefer to develop a great relationship and, and see if we can make it, you know, see if we can make the world better together
2: than wreak vengeance on... Yeah. Yeah. yeah.
0: It's just not me. Yeah. It's just not me. yeah
2: I don't think I'd last at all. Thanks again for your talk. Um, it was very inspiring. Um, in recent years, I guess, um, a lot of American physicians have um, had
1: a lot of pushback for complaining about gun violence in the States and, you know, they've been told to stay in their lane and whatnot. I was wondering if you had received... There's
0: no lane, by the way. Yeah, I was wondering if just you'd that. received
2: <laughs> such criticism. <laughs> Um, and Mm. how did you deal with
1: being a doctor uh, and then going out into a a sphere which you've talked about as being very foreign at the beginning and Mm. tips for us, I guess?
0: Well, for those of you who are doctors or becoming doctors, actually, for me, there are only two little letters, the D and the R, but they're amazingly powerful, incredibly powerful. I had no idea how powerful they would be and... um, You know, when I graduated, I was certainly very much subject to that Australian tall poppy syndrome ethos where you certainly shouldn't mention (laughs) that you're a doctor in any public setting, you should sort of keep down, don't say anything. Um, And I did that until I realised that I was getting meetings with some of the most powerful finance leaders in Australia, And the reason I was getting the meeting was because I was a doctor. And then I started to go to finance conferences, and the reason that people would listen or give me a a spot on stage was because I was a doctor. And then I started travelling globally, and suddenly, same thing. And I thought, well, actually, here I am. and, And remember, I didn't invent sustainable finance or ethical finance. It's actually been around for years and years, and I think it must have been very annoying for a lot of people who've been pushing for this for decades, and then I rock up, and then I get all the meetings. But I realised that that was because I had this incredible advantage of being a doctor and um, people would listen to me, people would accept the meeting, people would tell me all of those things that they would never tell most people. But that gave me an opportunity to see what were the difficult challenges, what are the barriers, let's see if we can solve them together. And it helped educate me, but they would let me educate them. So I now milk the doctor thing for, for all it's worth because it... It is a massive advantage and, um, and ultimately, this work actually has nothing to do with me. I don't smoke. It has nothing to do with me. I'm not doing this for me. I'm doing this for the smokers out there. I'm doing this for the families of smokers. I'm doing this for all the people who have suffered. I'm doing this for the next generation of children. I'm doing this for the world. It's not for me. So, you know, yes, I milk the doctor thing, but. I'm happy to do that if we can make the world a bit better. And so definitely, all of you who become doctors, use it for all it's worth. (laughs) Please thank
3: Dr Bronwyn King. What are your reflections on the talk? Um, It was pretty incredible hearing her story and various twists and turns that um, she's taken. Personally reflecting on being a junior doctor and having passions and interests outside of being a clinician um, and how to balance all of that, um, she gave some great advice yeah you sort of feel like you're walking a tightrope of different interests that you have um, and you know devoting time to these other passions takes time away from being a doctor and it's just how you balance all that so that was pretty inspiring to see how she did it. What idea will you share with someone who wasn't here tonight? I really liked a couple of quotes she shared like the one that her colleague and friend said um, don't worry about what path you're taking it'll you know be paved under your feet as you go or something along those lines so I really like that advice and I liked the advice of finding something that you're passionate about and incorporating that into your everyday work because then it doesn't really feel like work What are your reflections on the talk? I thought it was quite interesting I, I like how she started in one place and just it went in a completely different direction that no one was ready for um, and I just uh, found it so interesting that you know even though we're studying one thing we're not just confined to the standard pathway.
1: And also I didn't know too much about the topic but I found it interesting especially at the end there how she was talking about
3: something that had never been done before was combining finance and health and things like that so yeah just thinking about things from a new perspective I found that really interesting as well. Give me your reflections
1: about tonight what will you take home with you?
3: i absolutely loved her mindset like medicine is something that has a very difficult long pathway to get into
2: and you think that while once you're a doctor you're gonna absolutely secure that position you know you're gonna stick to it but the fact that even after 13 years of hardcore study she still had that freedom of mind to
3: move around it was absolutely shocking to me and yeah i i was just saying to my friend gwen that if she didn't ask her accountant, if she didn't ask that critical question, like none of this would have happened. And all this movement, all this great work started from just one question, which is absolutely extraordinary. Thank you. Good luck with your studies. You. What did you think of the talk? Oh, I thought it was just amazing. It was a real eye-opening. And like as she said, it was a huge it was just one moment, right? And then the fact that she's not stuck into one kind of like pathway, the fact that she's not stuck in kind of a fixed mindset where it's like, no, I'm going to continue like doing whatever I want. It's not my problem. I'm not a smoker. She could have just done that, you know, but like the selflessness that she goes through and like the power of networks as well. That's really stood out to me. Like the fact that she was just like. She made one friend after the other and that friend introduced another friend and it's just, it just keeps going and it has ripples everywhere. That's really what shocked me, I guess. What's a memorable idea you'd share with someone? I actually really liked that quote that she said someone told her about like the path forming underneath you like each step of the way. If you don't know where you're going, just keep going and you'll figure it out. I was like, that's so relevant to my life. I like that. <laughs> What's an idea that really captured your imagination?
1: I was really captured by the idea that I don't have to know what I want my career to be right now, even though I'm a graduate, even though I've got a PhD, I've already got the doctor in front of my name. I don't have to be a researcher, I don't have to be anything, I can figure it out as I go, I can be open to opportunities and hopefully be inspired. So what does
3: inspire you?
1: Well the reason I came along today was that I'm inspired by advocacy, so I am a researcher, but advocacy is what I want to do so the idea of being able to influence uh, policy and things like that on a on a bigger scale that's what um, inspires me and that's what I really would like to be able to do I think. Thank you. After the talk we cornered Dr Bronwyn King for some final comments. What is your take-home message today for those that aren't here?
0: My take-home message today for All of the students at Melbourne University is to dream big, believe in it, find one person to back your idea and then make it happen. Sometimes life will take you on a journey that you can't possibly imagine and uh, you need to trust in the universe, take opportunities when they arise, don't be afraid to change your mind or pivot and uh, be open to what the world has in store for you. My call to action is for students to believe that they have voices that need to be heard.
1: And tell us, what shift in thinking would you like us to have?
0: I'd love for students to believe that they are the ones that are going to find the solutions to the world's greatest challenges. Dr Bronwyn
1: King, thank you. Thank you, it's a pleasure. Thanks to Dr Bronwyn King, Angela Lavois-Pierre, Fabian Mackay and Kristen Mariner. This episode was recorded on the 27th of February 2020 at the Alumni Hour, hosted by MDHS at the University of Melbourne. Produced by Andy Horvath, with sound engineering and editing by Arch Cuthbertson. I'm Sylvie Van Waal, and this has been Event FOMO.